All right. Well, good morning. We'll see how this goes today. If we can get whoever's coming in to come in and also to shut the doors. All right. Let's get back to our study of covenant theology. We've finally started and got into the new covenant. And we've spent a couple weeks on that. And obviously the past couple weeks, we just went back to the church history for a stretch. Um, But just by way of review, um, one of the things that we try to stress a few weeks back is that the new covenant, as it is outlined for us in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following, is that though it is described as a new covenant, and that is not inappropriate, it is not new in the sense that it is brand new, never seen before. And we saw that just simply by the very things that were promised there in Jeremiah 31. I will be your God and you will be my people being the heart of that. That is not brand new. Also, the fact that your sins will be forgiven, the law will be on your heart. Those are things that are actually found in the Mosaic Covenant. Those are things that are found prior to the declaration of the New Covenant. But we also spent some time looking at that expression, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And just to get your juices flowing and seeing who's with me here, what did we conclude that that expression meant? Okay, tall people and short people. What else? All sorts of people. All sorts of people. So the all there is not all without exception. The great qualifying statement from the least of these to the greatest is a statement that gives all people without distinction. All kinds of people. And that's really how Jeremiah uses that expression throughout his prophecy, that and somewhat similar. Um, and you may recall some of, well, we looked at one or two of the uses, but it's also important to note as well um, the other ones that I referenced in the previous uh, lesson that we talked about this. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, How many places is the expression new covenant made? How many times in the Old Testament do you see the expression new covenant? That's a good question. Is there there one in Ezekiel? You realize only one. It's only as an expression. It's only in Jeremiah 31. 
Now, of course, it's quoted in the New Testament. Um, you know, of course, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 deal with uh, citing Jeremiah 31. But that doesn't mean that the concept of the new covenant is only in Jeremiah 31. There are passages in Ezekiel. There are other passages even in Jeremiah that clearly refer to what we would call, what he, Jeremiah himself calls, the new covenant that clearly all match. Can anybody think of other expressions before we start looking at passages? Okay, the tents of Israel being expanded. Yep. Okay, Ezekiel 16. And actually, at some point, I was going to get to that passage. In Ezekiel 16, 60, and the verses subsequent, you have a, a reference to an everlasting covenant. You also have a... Um, Reference to the covenant of peace. You've got that as well. And sometimes just establishing a covenant. But as you look at some of these passages, which we'll kind of turn to and make certain connections, what we'll end up doing is kind of show how these all tie and really it is a reference to the new covenant and ultimately a reference about Christ. Now, I don't know how we'll get today because you know we like to talk that's okay that's good um, but you include it as an answer to the question just asked references that indicate that nations other than Israel will be included well we certainly can talk about that but I'm just focusing on the passages that deal with language that is similar to what we see in Jeremiah 31 um, but we will, we will have to deal with those questions. And also, there, you do see them in Isaiah, um, how it's not just Israel and Judah. It's other nations that are included and brought in. Um, but Jeremiah 31, 31 and following is really not the only Old Testament text that deals with, at least conceptually, the new covenant. So... Let's take, for example, Jeremiah 32. Let's turn there. And this is why also I tend to um, remind people, in a very friendly manner, of course, that the New Covenant passage does not end at Jeremiah 31, verse 34. I usually tell them, go on to verse 37, um, but it really does continue into chapter 32. Um, but I want to jump down to Jeremiah 32, verse 37. And here, this actually has a reference to what Roy was talking about. Um, it, it does start there. It, it doesn't quite do it, but um, it is what ends up happening. And you even see it with the whole story of Esther as well. But, Jeremiah 32, beginning at verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger 
and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So notice language here. What do you notice, first of all, that's common to what we saw in chapter 31 with the new covenant passage? What's the, what do you see similar? Yeah, they shall be my people, I will be their God. That's what Robertson called the Emmanuel Principle. And again, that's not new in the sense of brand new, never seen before. You saw it with Abraham, you saw it with Moses, and you see it with David, you see it here with the New Covenant. Notice that the language Jeremiah uses here is everlasting covenant. Now, what's, what's, you know, I started at verse 37, and if you look there, what's the thing that's promised there? A return. Why is that significant? What, what's, what's Jeremiah speaking of here? Israel in exile. Okay, so there is an aspect with respect to the new covenant this everlasting covenant, a return, a restoration. Okay, So keep that thought in your mind because, you know, it's very easy. I can go on and talk about how, you know, this points to Christ and it brings all people under Christ. And we understand that from biblical theology, but we also don't use a single verse in isolation from others. And that's as we look at some of these other passages, we'll try to bring all of this together. So this idea of restoration, that key theme here, and you again note the Emmanuel principle. It's not named New Covenant, but it's named Everlasting Covenant. And notice that you see in verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. It's God who does this. It's God who initiates. All right, let's jump ahead to chapter 50. And this relates, but there's a certain sense where it's a lot clearer. And to be honest, it does help to know just even a basic rudimentary understanding of biblical history to get the point of what Jeremiah is driving at here. But in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5, In those days, in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord that they are gone. They shall ask the way of Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, Let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. Particularly in verse 4, what do you see? It's very similar to what we saw in chapter um, 
uh, what we just saw in Chapter 32. Conrad? Okay. So what do you see in verse 4? Okay, a rejoining of the northern tribes and the southern tribes. That is huge. That is a major significant detail. Because what that actually does is, in a somewhat subtle way, emphasize the fact that the covenant that God made with Abraham will still come true. And yet this is now the everlasting new covenant. So there is a tie-in to the Abrahamic covenant here. And this is where a, a basic knowledge, even just simple knowledge of Israel's history in the Bible. And, and, the, and their covenant with David. And their covenant with David, which we'll come to because there are more explicit texts that deal with this. Um, but that is true. I'm thinking about him being king over a united Israel. Correct, which is what we'll get to in those other passages, particularly in Ezekiel. Um, so the, the point here is that we get a greater understanding of this restoration that God will now bring to pass not just you know, bringing people into a land, but all that he actually promised to Abraham. So there's a connection here. Now, the history side of this, we need to remember, Jeremiah wrote right around the time that the exile took place. So some of the things before, and then, of course, you have after with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so God is... And well, actually, let me take a step back. While that's true, remember, as we're talking about Isaiah in our evening service, Isaiah was written at a time when the northern tribes and the southern tribes really were at odds, and you end up with basically amounts to the destruction of the northern tribes by the Assyrian Empire. And now you have Jeremiah here writing you know, a good hundred plus years later. Reunion, restoration, fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. Conrad, what was your question? Absolutely. And see, um, maybe you got this from Piper in, in class, I don't know. But when I had uh, Dr. Piper in Christ and Salvation, um, I think he makes a strong argument, and I think these passages help support the idea, and I'm not going to be dogmatic, but this idea of what we call the covenant of redemption and the new covenant or the covenant of grace um, that we shouldn't make such a hard distinction that the covenant of grace is a part of or an aspect of that covenant of redemption. Yeah, that was his argument, yeah. That's so, and I, I think it's a pretty strong argument, but I'm not going to be dogmatic if somebody says, no, I don't agree. Yeah, 
That's fine. Roy? Yeah. They rebuilt the temple, and there's 400 years ago, twice the time our country's been around. And the, the, the time kind of rolls off our tongue. We don't think about the generations of this. Correct. I'm, I'm thinking about these people believing the promise of God, not the pagans, but those who are regenerate, who love the Lord, looking at these passages and saying, what do they mean? And not having a clue. And at the same time, Jesus uh, later rebukes the guys on the road to Emmaus saying, you should have understood. It was all there. Right. And I look at that and I say, as I look around today, I should understand. Yeah. I'm thinking about the people who argue about partial or full preterism. And we've got no excuse for being confused. Correct. We ought to know. Correct. And that applies to any number of things. The Old Testament does point forward and does make it clear. And even the, the irony is the Jews in Jesus' day, they weren't completely wrong. They understood certain things about these passages that did point to a coming Messiah, but they just completely ended up misunderstanding the whole role of the Messiah. And, that, and that's, but they should have known it was there. Um, so, yeah. The, the nature of the kingdom that he would establish. The nature, correct. All right. So, we've, we've talked about this restoration. Now, let's go, since it's been mentioned, to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel is another um, prophet who is, um, in terms of at least time, a contemporary of Jeremiah, except Jeremiah is in the promised land still as it's being destroyed. Ezekiel is one of those who's carried off. Okay, and it's not insignificant because Ezekiel begins and it talks about the fact that he, he basically is a priest, and he's 30 years old when he's carried off. The significance of that is, here is Ezekiel at the age of 30, the age at which he is a full-fledged priest, priest and no longer an apprentice. And he's carried off. So we come to Ezekiel 16. And look at verse 60. And it's mid-sentence, I realize, but that's okay. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. Now, isn't this an interesting passage? 
because there are two very key things that almost seem very antithetical that are being presented in this text. The first is this establishment of the eternal covenant again. What does it actually do for the people? Well, yeah, right, but that, that had to do specifically with the daughters there. But, but this whole establishing of the covenant, how does Ezekiel play that out? It brings what to them? Shame. It brings shame. And you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. I thought the whole point of the new covenant was to take away our shame. Well, yes. But you cannot understand the glories of the new covenant unless you first understand that you are in a state of shame apart from it. When you see the truth of the gospel, what you deserve, what it ultimately costs God himself, that should bring you shame. But... How does this passage that we just read end? What is the other aspect of it? The atonement. The atonement. The Hebrew word there just means to cover. And there are some translations that actually will translate forgive. And that's okay. but, But it's the idea of cover. And so even there, we get this concept of the people being covered from facing the wrath of God due to their shame for sin. And so both are there. And that's why when we think of the cross, we should both rejoice, yes, but also feel shame because it's my sin that put him there. Each of us needs to say it. It's not just me. Conrad? Yeah. Yeah. This is the prime example of that. Yep. Christ being. Rachel? Humility and gratitude, correct. Yeah. But the other aspect of this, what I want to talk about with respect to the shame, which is true, there, there has to be this element of shame. that we are, But at the same time, we also understand that how the passage end, ends. When I atone, when I cover for all that you have done, Who's the subject of the verb? Yeah, I mean, really, the triune God. And it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice that it is God who atones, God who covers. And this is the aspect of the covenant of grace, the new covenant. And so not only does the everlasting covenant bring about a restoration, 
What it actually brings about is redemption and salvation and covering for sins and forgiveness of sins. Now, isn't that what Jeremiah 31 said? I will remember your sin no more. They're covered. They're atoned for. Derek? Um, he's talking about the covenant, his covenant, what he's going to do, but not because of your covenant? Well, it seems to be referring to the, um, the daughter, the, the sisters being given as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. Um, the footnote there is helpful, and I didn't look at the Hebrew for this, because I was focusing on the the uh, shame and also the atonement. But the footnote does say not apart from the covenant. So that may be the better understanding. Um, again, not having looked at it closely in the Hebrew, I don't know for certain. But All right, let's go to Ezekiel. Um, uh, well, let's go to Ezekiel 36 first. I'm sure. Ezekiel 36, uh, beginning at verse 33. And notice how this also ties in to what we just talked about. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. So notice you see both redemption and restoration. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And now note verse 35. And they will say this land was desolate and has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Look at that restoration. And this ties together the concept of restoration and redemption. How do we know that? Let's see if we can flush this out. What happened at the Garden of Eden? They were driven out of the garden. Why? They become unholy due to their sin. God not only restores them to the promised land, but he cleanses them from their iniquities. And those who pass by look and say, this is the Garden of Eden. Restoration and redemption, the two are connected. It's not as though those two things are distinct. They go hand in hand. And the Garden of Eden ends up being a picture that the new covenant, the intention of it, is to restore us to our state in Eden. Are we good? Derek? There's not a purpose of the time, but there's the 
Yeah. Right. Yep. That is a part of it, but even there, um, Paul in Romans 4, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, even Stephen, referring more to Israel, but still applies, um, the New Testament writers make it a point that Abraham actually understood that it was more than just this promised plot of land that we call Palestine and the you know, surrounding region. The author of Hebrews talks about all the patriarchs and what they were looking for. They were seeking a better country. Paul makes it clear that the promise that was given to him, this is in, in chapter 4, um, but Paul makes it clear that Abraham understood the promise that he would inherit not just simply the land, but the earth. All of it. And so the new covenant brings a greater fruition of what was even promised to Abraham because what was promised to Abraham was a type looking forward. So it's restoration. So what the new covenant really does is bring Eden on earth. That's kind of the short answer of it. So. So that I, so if you think of Abraham's mind when he heard the Nile to be afraid, that would have been like this kind of thing. Probably. Yeah. And the New Testament writer saw it that way. All right. Um, so that was chapter 36. Restoration, cleansing, so much so that it's a return to Eden. But now chapter 37, and there's actually two portions of chapter 37 that I want to look at. Um, I'm going to go to the bottom half of the chapter first. Well, I don't want to say the bottom half. Let me start at verse 11. Yeah, let's, now let's, let's jump down to verse 24 first and then we'll come back to verse 11. Um, verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They will walk in all my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be prince, be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. What do we see here? 
First of all, this everlasting covenant is connected to what? Or to whom? It was alluded to earlier. David, or the son of David, David's greater son. There's no doubt, even the Jews in Jesus' day would have understood this, in, at least in some way, as a messianic reference. But again, they misunderstood the whole nature of what that kingdom was going to be. So there's a connection with the Davidic covenant. So... Yeah, and with Jacob. So, you've got a conflation of covenants here. So, what, what I'm trying to show here is that even in the Old Testament, there is this idea that all of the covenants are connected. They, in essence, the heart of them all is really the same thing. This is why... Um, we see Paul speak of the gospel preached to Abraham. That, that's what we see. There is one covenant of grace. That covenant is administered by Christ in different ways throughout history. But the heart of it is always the same. The in-time outworking of it looks different. But at its heart, it's the same thing. Restoration, redemption, back to Eden, salvation. God will be our God. Chase? Okay. Oh, the author of Hebrews also says that in the Mosaic they will preach the gospel. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 10 that in the wilderness it's Christ they put Yeah. And what Paul also said in in 1 Corinthians 10 was they drank from the same spiritual rock. And what was that? It was Christ. Trish? Yeah. Yeah, the, having a proper fear of the Lord, as in all. And you, the, those who've been here for a while know that I frequently reference Psalm 130, that one psalm of ascent, where we're in the middle of the psalm. The psalmist says, With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And you think, that, that just seems so strange. Wouldn't we rejoice? Well, yes, we do. There are other passages that speak of rejoicing because we've received forgiveness. But we also have that, that um, proper sense of fear, not being afraid, but fear, awe, reverence. Look what God has done that I might be forgiven. Trish? Yeah, all those things. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, this, this ties into what we just read in verse 25, in the middle of the verse. They and their children and their children's children. That is covenantal language, and this is a new covenant passage. It includes our children. Okay, now I want to jump back to... Um, One thing before we make that jump. I'm looking at what it says here. What it says, they will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob. The land where your fathers live. They and their children and children's children will live there forever. That's me. Yeah. This land that I'm really in right now is, is not Palestine. But this is the land that I'm that was promised, and that's how Paul understood it in Romans 4. Yeah, and, and my point is that when we look at this, all of a sudden we're looking at something, we realize he's speaking with metaphors. Correct. And Palestine is too small. Correct. It's not enough. That will, we will get to those other nations. Uh, we will definitely get there. Um, but the, but the point is unquestionably a good one. As I mentioned, Paul in Romans 4 makes it clear in, um, that the promise given to Abraham was a promise that he would inherit the earth. But I would also add to you in relation to this, think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 to the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And what does he do? He cites what? The fifth commandment. And what does he say about the fifth commandment? It has a promise. And he's telling that to Ephesian Gentile children that they will live long on the land that the Lord their God gives them. That's, it just shows that it's one and the same. Conrad? In, in the Lord, correct. All right. Jump up a few verses. Maybe I should say a couple paragraphs, but verse 11. This matters. Now, as an aside, um, we had a children's story Bible when our kids were younger. And one of our kids just loved this whole story here in Ezekiel 37. But I'm just going to look at verse 11 to the end of that section. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord." Now, we tend to look at this, and rightly so, as a wonderful picture of regeneration. And we should. 
But it's really more than just that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. And even what we have here in Matthew 27, a real historical event that points to something greater. Matthew 27. I'll start at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. What happened at Christ's death? The tombs were opened. We don't know how many. No idea. But do you not see the connection between what Ezekiel 37 said, this passage here, and what do they both ultimately point to? Second coming of Christ, which involves the resurrection. Restoration, redemption, regeneration, resurrection. There's your alliteration right there. Isn't that awesome? I didn't plan it that way, by the way. So So that's the thing to keep in mind. And how else do we know this? In Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And there is going to be a slight variation depending on the manuscript family that we're talking about. But when Jesus held up the cup, what did he say? This cup is the... New covenant in my blood. Everything that we've talked about today helps reinforce our understanding of the new covenant as we see it in Jeremiah chapter 31. The concept and all of the other things that we see there are in, well, to put it Bluntly, seed form in Jeremiah 31. But we need to look at the other passages, and we still haven't touched them all. Old Testament, New Testament, how the authors put it all together. This is, this is actually a proper way to do biblical theology. This is why, for instance... Our Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1, paragraph 9. And interestingly enough, it literally is just a simple parenthetical statement. 
But the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is manifold, not manifold, but one. It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. What this paragraph is doing in a more general sense is really just talking about what we call the analogy of scripture and the analogy of faith. The analogy of, and by the way, I've said this before, but I, I used to get the two mixed, mixed up. Um, but the concept, as long as you remember the concept, you're fine. The analogy of scripture, if you come across a verse or a text that is hard, what's the best way to interpret it? You find easier texts of scripture to help you interpret it. That's the analogy of scripture. The analogy of faith is taking the entirety of what the Bible teaches, the faith, and trying to help us understand the more difficult texts. That's that's what sets apart, in many respects, those who are confessionally reformed and, well, really those who aren't, even those who are Calvinistic. Um, in other words, our, even our proof texting, and we do proof text, has to be done in such a manner that we use proof text to interpret things, but also in light of the whole. That's what we're trying to do here, is get a look at various passages and then look at the whole as well. Roy? I'm looking at this passage in, in Matthew where the people come out of their tools. Kid, kids at a party, one of them around the presence, they get really excited. And you have to talk to them about a sequence of events. And what we're seeing here is something which is so incredible it's a spillover. The resurrection is being foreshadowed what, what happens when the Lord returns. Correct. Right. But in addition to that, the future is intruding on them. Right. We're limited, I'm limited, in terms of time. I'm not even sure what time is for the scientists. And experientially, I'm limited by my thoughts about time. Not so God. Right. And he has left some of the incredible reality of what happens when Christ returns spill over it into time right. at the resurrection that he himself was raised. And that's probably a proper use of intrusion. Some of you may get that, but that's okay. And, and, and it's, it's more than I can wrap my head around. I mean, I use the, the idea Correct. of an intrusion, but I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. That, that's the difficulty of it all. But, but that's the reality. We get foretaste. And as grand and as glorious to our eyes, it must have been to watch the waters part and to walk through and have water on either a wall of water. That actually pales in comparison to the redemption that Christ has purchased for us by virtue of the new covenant. 
That's the thing that all of us need to understand. It is a greater redemption. So we're out of time, so let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Father and God in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word and what it teaches us, reminds us concerning the new covenant, how it brings restoration, how it brings redemption, how it brings regeneration and resurrection. Father, how we rejoice in these truths and how we've also seen how the new covenant is connected to Abraham and to Moses and to David to indicate that there is one Christ and one way of salvation. Grace, faith, and Christ. Father, we pray that this would warm our hearts as we're about to come into your presence to worship you because of your covenant faithfulness and love to us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.